0: media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.cornerstone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. Well, Taylor, if you would just kind of go around and maybe give one of those per couple there and uh, what he's given out is really a harmony of the gospel of this particular story. I think it's just a, a good addit uh, teaching thing, uh, we're to be people of the Word, and and you know we we fix ourselves on the Word of God, and we want that to be uh, the foundation of all the teaching and proclamation that we make here. And I thought that since this was one of two uh, events that we see there in the New Testament in the life of Christ that is recorded in all four Gospels, there must be something about this feeding of the five thousand. In fact, I would ponder this morning that there's a few stories from the Bible, events from the Bible, that are known even outside of the church, outside of Christian rank. Uh, David Goliath being one of those, we use that uh, a lot of times as a moralistic story. Uh, and appropriately, we use it as a moralistic story. We certainly can gain some morality from it, but it's all about Christ. Uh, Noah and the Ark is another one that a lot of people, you know, some people that don't even know the Bible might uh, even decorate maybe... Uh, uh, their baby's room or something with no in the ark because we, we see something like that. And so there's some stories that have actually kind of gone out into community, out into the world uh, of people that maybe wouldn't really, if you want to say, profess a belief in Christianity. And yet they know that story. And the feeding of the 5,000 may be one of those. It's an amazing miracle. And it's so easy to get caught up in the miraculous nature of that miracle. But have you ever wondered why Jesus did that? I'm a firm believer that everything that Jesus did, he did with purpose. Uh, At at the first part of most of the Gospels, as those Gospel writers write, and even in the Old Testament, we see that Christ lived a very intentional life. He had a life of purpose. I've come to seek and to save those who are lost. I've come to serve, not to be served. And he's always mentioning his mission, and it is that he would be the Redeemer. He would be that ultimate Lamb of God. And here we see that he has purpose in everything that he does, So why did he feed these 5,000? He could have just as easily sent them home that evening. He could have done a lot of different things. And so as we examine this from Scripture this morning, I I want us to kind of keep that in mind because there's always a purpose in the life of Christ and what he did. Now, it could have been that he was simply responding to to needs of people, that they were hungry after a long day of teaching. And there's times that we see in the ministry of Christ that Christ does the very practical. That is, they're hungry, I'll give you food. In fact, he said a lot of our ministry really needs to kind of start off in a very practical nature. And it goes there into two other reasons and purposes. But, you know, if somebody's thirsty, give them a cup of water. Then they're going to be even that much more cognizant to hear maybe the spiritual news. It could have been that he was trying to gain support. I don't know about that because by this time, it's probably the height of Jesus' popularity. There's probably more people curious and following him in the sense of just kind of being aware of his ministry. Not so much following him and what his message is. It could have been that he just wanted to, you know, share uh, lunch of uh, this little boy. And again, that would be more of a moralistic story that as we take our lunch to Jesus, our little lunch, that he can multiply it and use in a lot of people. Is there a moral there? Is there a moralistic purpose? Yes. But I don't know that any of those really are sufficient to answer the question, why? Why would Christ feed 5,000? He could have done it every single day. And yet this is one of the two occasions we see a feeding of the 5,000 and we see the feeding of a 4,000. And there could have been more, but these are the two that are mentioned in the Bible. The one thing I do know, is that he didn't do it without purpose. So let's start with the context and see if we can get down to the why of this. Uh, the disciples had just returned from going out two by two. Jesus sent them out with what? Really, the goat on their back. And basically, they had to kind of trust in Jesus. And that's a very important little clue here. As they went out two by two, trusting in the provision of Christ... Now they've returned, and boy, do they have some stories to share with the Savior. And so they've come back, and they've assembled together. But there's something else that's kind of happening that's kind of a negative. I would say coming back and sharing the stories of how they were able to tell people about Christ, they were actually allowed to do miracles and healings. You know, God enabled them to do that, so they had some stories to tell. And, hey, he was You know, when we came in, he couldn't walk, but when we left by the power of God, he was walking. What incredible times they would have had. That would have been a very up moment. And yet they were living also in the shadow of a very down moment. They were very aware that John the Baptist had been beheaded. And we saw that last week. And that's kind of like our lives. There's these moments that we have great excitement, uh, to the point of even exhaustion sometimes. And then there's times that... uh, We're really so burdened because of the world that we live in. And so what does Jesus prescribe? He says, okay, what you need right now is a time away, some R&R, some rest, and reflection time. Not so much just rest and relaxation, but rest and reflection. Look what it says in verse 30 and 31 of Mark chapter 6. And the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place. And rest for a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. Now this is not the first time that we've seen a description like this. The ministry of Christ has become so um, much of a, a magnet of a lot of curious people. Yes, there is a small group that is actually following Christ and has put trust and faith in the message of the gospel that he is sharing. But then there's others that are just curious. And then there's others that truly are coming, but they're coming with kind of this, this desire to be healed. And their intention is much more of what God can do for them to heal their immediate needs than so much of a social basis. And so it says in verse 32 and 33, and they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. Have you ever come across that verse, verse 32, before? Even as a child, I mean, when I started going to church when I was a young kid, I saw that and I'm going, that seems either crazy, silly, or really athletic. I don't know where to place that, that they see Jesus and the disciples get on the boat. It's the Sea of Galilee, and they get on the boat, and they anticipate where Jesus is going to be, and they start running on the shore. That always confused me because I thought it, for the most part, impossible until I went to the Holy Land. And it's an amazing thing. Can we show that that first uh, slide there? Uh, A little map here of the Sea of Galilee and uh, you can see up there Capernaum at the top and that's where really the headquarters of Jesus during this time. And we don't know exactly where this fishes and loaves took place. Uh, there's actually two different speculations. If you see right under this place that's called um, the the Tabga, do you see there's looks like two fishes and a loaf? Do you see that? They've actually built a church there. Uh, the Catholics uh, early in the early centuries built a church there, as they did many, to kind of say, okay, this is where we believe this might have happened. And we visited that church. And it's really wonderful to think, okay, this could have been the place where Jesus did this miracle. But then if you read other scholars, they will say it actually happened in a place way north of here called Bethesda. And uh, it could have happened there. And then there's somebody else that says, no, it happened over here. here here's what I've concluded. <laughs> we don't know. <laughs> but it took, did take place. But the important thing, can we show that next slide, is to kind of reason our mind what's happening with this verse 33. Uh, this is a picture, if you go south out of the picture view, you'd be in Tiberias. It's a pretty big city, especially today. If you go a little bit north there, there's a Genesaret. We stayed there one night when I was in Israel. If you go kind of the north, you can see, barely see, uh, just a couple houses and stuff that would be Capernaum. This is small. It's so much smaller than I thought. And it was very easy to be in Capernaum on a clear day and see across the lake to Genesaret, into Tiberias, and these other places. And then all of a sudden, this verse that I always wondered about, I always going, man, what are these people doing? It made sense to me. Jesus set off from one of these cities. They anticipated, oh, he must be going this place or that place, because basically he was either going kind of, you know, to the northern part there or the southern part there. They anticipated, and they ran from these cities. Would it have been a long way? Yes. It would have been a challenge for some of us to run that fast, but there was excitement. And what happened is they began to run. Why are you running? Why are you going? Jesus is going to teach at so-and-so, whatever city he ended up in. And the crowd grew and grew and grew to the point where at You know, at this point, look at John chapter, uh, chapter 6 verse 2. This is where something like the harmony of the gospels come in. We were in Mark, now we jump over to John chapter 6 verse 2, because it tells us a little bit more that Mark, you know, left out for whatever purpose. John chapter 6, and a large crowd was following him, and it gives their motive. What is their motive? Because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. They come with a very narrow intention. And yet just, Jesus still loves them. They, they come not so much for the spiritual, but for the physical. There's others that want Him to be the next king. We're going to read about that. And they want Him to overthrow the Roman government and the authorities in that area. There's a lot of people that have a lot of different intentions of their following Jesus. Would you agree that that exists even this day? I mean, there's just a lot of people going, you know, I just don't want to go to, you know, where. And that's their main motivation. Not so much I get God, I just don't want to get that. There's other people that want and treat Jesus like he's a life coach. You know, just help me to have my best life now. He is Lord. He is the one son of God. And the only way that any of us would ever know, holy God is through the redemptive finished work of Jesus Christ. That's His purpose. And that's why He's come. And yet, let's be honest. We all probably at certain points of our lives have seen Jesus in different lines. They have a, a, hey, they have, I mean, if I had a daughter back in those days, like we've read of some of these others, and she was sick, and I heard that Christ had healed others, guess where I'm gonna go line up? I promise you. The need of my life would drive me to something, especially if it involved my children. And so we, we understand this. But, but more importantly, even though Jesus very much is very specific of why he's come, look at his heart. Look at verse 34. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. Now it says feeding of 5,000, but it's a 5,000 men. Plus, there's going to be women and there's going to be children. There could be easily fifteen, twenty thousand 20,000 people there. So it's a great crowd, especially for those days. And he went ashore and he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Verse 34 is really, really significant for us to understand the why of this feeding. Most of us... We think of sheep as Mary had a little lamb. Its fleece was white as snow. Any farmer would tell you for the most part, that's a fairy tale. <laughs> that's not reality. In reality, sheep are, um, let's just say they're not as cute as you would think. Now, maybe little baby sheep are, because baby anything is kind of cute. But as sheep grow up, they, they are not the cleanest of animals. They're actually kind of nasty and dirty. And, and they need a shepherd. They are, they are one species that, for the most part, need a shepherd. They need a shepherd to, or they will starve to death. They really don't know how to feed on their own. They will exhaust the land if you just leave them and don't move them from one place to the other. They are full of disease, and disease would take over their lives. And they will be attacked by other animals. They really don't have a defense mechanism. You know, it's not like sheep have fangs or something, or claws. They're pretty defenseless. They need a shepherd. And what we see in verse 34 here is that we see this word that that Jesus has compassion on them. It's a word that's only used 12 times in the New Testament. And every time that it's used, nine of those times, it's used specifically of Jesus and the other three times, it's a parable of Jesus of talking about the kind of love that we should have. For example, the prodigal son. It describes the father's compassion for the lost son. So this word is a really important word. It's never used to describe the disciples. It's never described, you know, it's all about Jesus. In this, uh, and, and what it means in the Greek is this, from the very pit of the stomach, from from the gut, there is a feeling, a deep-seated emotion of love. And he looks upon this crowd and he gets this deep feeling of emotion, this compassion toward them that these are sheep without a shepherd. Luke 9.11 says that he saw them and he welcomed them and he began to teach. And it's interesting here that if we went through all four Gospels, that this was a full day of teaching, that he comes ashore, and he teaches, and we're gonna find out that he teaches till supper time. To night time, okay? But do you know that none of the four gospels tell us what he taught? It's not like the, the Beatitudes, it wasn't this. None of them strive what he taught. Now, what he taught was very important, but it must not have been the point of the story. It must not have been the point of the feeding of the why. Or I'm sure at least one of the gospel writers would have been inspired by the Holy Spirit to to, to write. And he taught that day. All we know is that he taught about the kingdom. Because he was always teaching about the kingdom of God. But we don't know any specifics whatsoever, whatsoever. But what we do know, and it's not just true of Mark, but in all the other three gospels, that he taught for a long time. And that by the time that he was ending the teaching, it was you know, time in the evening to eat. Look what happens, Mark chapter 6, verse 35 and 36. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place, and and that hour is late. Now, again, my mind kind of goes wild with that, being a pastor, because I have had once or twice in the 38 years, somebody in the back go, it's supper time <laughs> uh, last Sunday may have been one of those days and in, in the we went to about twelve fifteen because God was just really you know he was he blessed us in a wonderful way and and good testimony and all those things and but I can imagine that there were people going my wife being one of those okay Bobby that's enough and I don't know if the disciples came up and cut Jesus off or Jesus was finished and then they said you know look, here's our dilemma. It's very, very late. We need to go ahead and disperse the crowd so that they can go and eat. Verse 36, send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Not trying to be cute or anything, but guys, they don't have McDonald's, they don't have Taco Bell's, they don't have Zaxby's to to run over and get a meal and and, and kind of hang around. And, And so in one way, the disciples, they're not being lacking of faith as much as they are being pragmatic okay, it's late evening, they've been listening, they've been really hanging on your words today, you've you've taught them, but now it's time to let them go and let them go eat. Jesus' solution was not the same as the disciples. He doesn't look at the obstacle, he doesn't look at at something that can't be maneuvered there. And, And so instead of just saying, okay, Watch what I'm about to do. Look what he does in verse 37. I love the teaching style of Christ. <laughs> but he answered after they, no, they've said we didn't need to disperse them. We need to send them out. Okay. We don't have any food. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. Now what would have been your answer to that? All of a sudden, you know, Jesus kind of turns the tables on you a little bit, and you're going, okay, Jesus, we need to put them out. They need to go home, or they need to go to to other places where they can get food. We don't have any. And then Jesus goes, you know, not so much not my problem, your problem, but he he puts it upon them. He he says, you feed them. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them to eat? Denarii was an average man's wage. 200 denarii would have been eight months worth. Do do we go do that? And and they ask it in such a way, in the structure of the Greek, that number one, that's impossible. We don't have the money. Number two, even if we found a bakery open, they're not going to have enough for this massive amount of people. The disciples see the impossibilities. We don't have the funds. And even if we did, is that what we're really supposed to do? Is there a market? Is there a super Walmart in town that has enough to feed this great crowd? But what Jesus was really doing is teaching the disciples as much as he was teaching the people. In fact, I I really believe that's what he's doing here. This is where the the Gospels and doing the parallel of the Gospels really helps us. Because here's what John said in his Gospel about this specific event. Look at John chapter 6, verse 5 and 6. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, but where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He kind of puts it on them. And he said this to test Is it okay for God to test you? Well, number one, theologically, it's okay for God to do whatever God wants to do. So always know that no matter if people kind of back you into a corner to give an answer, and it's about God, God can do whatever he wants, okay? He's holy God. He's always right. Is that okay? Do do we really think of God as being one who tests us? I would say that scripture would prove out that he does. But we've said it before. There's some professors that you had in high school, college, other studies, and you almost swore that their purpose was to try to fail you by the design of their test, and this and the other. Then there's others that they were just as hard teachers, if not even harder, and yet you knew that they were there to mature you and to educate you. What was different was, in your understanding, was the motive. Is Jesus trying to get them to fail? Or does he want to mature them? He wants to mature them, it would be my suspicion. And this is where we begin to see the why of this miracle. Again, in my opinion, Have the disciples learned to trust God's providing power? He has just sent them out without provision, two by two, and yet on the flip side of that, what's the other heavy thing that has just happened? They've heard about a co-laborer, John the Baptist, who just got his head cut off by the king. I mean, doesn't that describe your life and my life in a little bit? That if we look at our lives, we will see the evidence of God's provision in our life, and yet we live and Kind of a scary world. A world where as much as we have faith and belief that God did these things, we're going, yeah, but God, I live in this world and this is what's happening to to people that I know and love. This is what's happening to Christians. This is what's happening to people that state their belief or whatever it might be. We see that dilemma. We see that friction that's going on there. And I think it's the same to us. That there's a part of us that truly trusts and praises God for his provision. And yet there's another kind of challenge in our life when trial lands at our door. I think that's why people have always had a hard time really kind of capturing the essence and the real meaning of when James said, And James chapter 1, verse 2 and 3, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. He's never told us to have joy in the actual trial, but in the result of what that trial does as we persevere in our faith in Christ. Two entirely different things. I would never go to somebody who just lost their husband and their wife You know, we need to have joy in this. We need to have joy in all things. No. We don't have sorrow in this. We mourn. But do we do mourn as those who have no hope? And even in this, even in that hard, hard time that few of us have experienced and few of us can even imagine, God will show His faithfulness and that's what brings perseverance. It's not that all of a sudden that we just man up Now we find out that Christ is sufficient. God has never called us just to get stronger in our own ability. Hey, just grow up in the sense of growing up in an independent way where our focus on how we can do it. No, the instruction to mature is always maturity in Christ Jesus. It's always that that we would have more and more an intimacy with Christ and we would understand how Christ brings us and helps us to persevere, even the worst of times. That's really good medicine when we're feeding it to our kids. Now, this is a tough time. I mean, have you had that conversation with your kids before? They come in crying, they're all upset about something. This is a really tough time, but you know, you're going to learn from this. I hated that when I was a kid. I've said that way too many times as a parent. Because somehow we knew that, okay, if it's a maturing factor, then we can kind of trust the process. Would you agree, parents, when it comes to children, that, you know, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust the process here. And this is really tough, and my heart's breaking, but I'm going to trust the process. Do you trust that with God? <laughs> I mean, just because we get a couple more digits into our uh, numerical age doesn't mean that automatically that at 40 or 50 or 60 or whatever it might be, that all of a sudden that we just mature and grow in our faith. Watch what happens here. There's little boys there in the crowd, and, and we do think that it's Andrew that goes out and kind of identifies that he has this little, you know, some, uh, some bread and some uh, fish that would have been like sardines. The bread would have been like a pita bread uh, familiar to us. Now watch what happens. When the disciples are convinced that this is all that they have, and I, I think Jesus purposely allows them to come to that place, hey, this is all we have. Look what happens. Mark chapter 6 verse 41 and 42. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, he said a blessing, and he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people and He divided the the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. Would you call that miraculous there's actually I believe at least two miracles that happened there, and i 'm not really trying to be silly i 'm being very practical here. number one that he took one little lunch and fed. Perhaps 15 to 20 to 25,000 people. So that's miraculous. The Greek word that's used here, satisfied, actually translates gorged. They ate till they couldn't eat anymore. So that's one of the miracles. But here's the other one. They ate and were satisfied. Get 25,000 people together and cater that meal. You know, I want the dairy free, I want the gluten free, I want the sodium free, I want the vegetarian, I want the vegan, I want, I mean, where are the chicken, you know, tenders for the kids? 25,000 people perhaps. And he took this meal. I mean, what if he didn't like, I don't like sardines. But that day they did. And they were satisfied. Not only did they eat a lot, but they were satisfied. When was the last time that you knew that people, that big of a crowd, could, could take one meal and become satisfied? They're, they're satisfied because God made it satisf- you know, satisfying to them. Now look what happens. Verse 43. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. They had eaten all they could. They were gorged. They were satisfied. Oh, that was the best meal we've ever had. And there was some left over. And how much was left over? Twelve baskets. I think that's significant. When you think of the feeding, this miracle, do you think of more the number 5,000 or do you think of the number 12? A lot of people, I think, would say, you know, I think of the number 5,000. It's the feeding of the 5,000. I would challenge my own opinion. I would challenge that if we are asking, what's the why here? What's this timeless truth? What is God instructing us 2,000 years later to understand? I think that the answer may be more the 12 than the 5,000. The whole story began with the disciples returning, having these miraculous stories, but also hearing the news of John the Baptist. They experienced things as we experienced things. There are things out there that have built our faith, but get this, guys, there's things out there in our world that test our faith remember what John said this was a test Jesus takes a kid's meal and he he makes it into a great feast and there could have been 20 baskets left over there could have been two baskets left over there could have been just enough where they said isn't that a miracle that we had just enough and yet there's 12 baskets there's 12 disciples and each one goes and and they're able to do that I, I can't Help but think that God is trying to again inform them i 'm sovereign and i 'm sufficient. The people in the crowd didn 't have a huge religious awakening as much as we can tell. In fact, this is where the, again the, the harmony of the gospels. Look what it says about this story and about the crowd in general in John chapter 6. John 6, 14 and 15. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. uh, Perceiving then that they may come, uh, they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. You are the king. You're the political leader. You are the one that's going to overthrow the Roman government. They have one mindset, and it's not so much spiritual as it is political in nature. They just can't get away that maybe the Messiah is going to go build this kingdom like David had, but a greater kingdom than David. And that's why they were so easy to reject Jesus, because he just didn't look like David, and he certainly wasn't trying to build an earthly kingdom. He was building a spiritual kingdom. And they failed to say it, see it in the same way that uh, that he was filling their bellies, that he was trying to teach them, hey, I can fill your souls. But as much as the 5,000 needed to know that, the disciples needed to know that because the death of Christ is approaching. We're at least probably two years into the ministry of Christ, maybe in two and a quarter, maybe two and a half. The fastest approaching is when Christ will fulfill his mission. And here's the three things that the disciples needed to know. That Jesus is satisfying. That he is sufficient. And that he is sovereign. Have you discovered that? In the testing and the trials and In the following and seeing the miraculous and seeing Christ and reading His Word and and have you come to the place where more and more and more you're satisfied in Christ? Where more and more and more you see the sufficiency of Christ? Where more and more and more you see the sovereignty of God over all things? Guys, I promise you christ is satisfying i promise you he is sufficient and he is sovereign but bobby's knowledge of that our experience of that is supposed to be growing but it's a little bit of a roller coaster ride it's kind of up and down but i would hope that even it has kind of these waves that over time at least the dips are a little bit higher than the last dips and and the high points are higher than the last high points. And, and that somehow, as we just kind of look at life, as we have traveled with Christ and, and walked with Christ, that, that there's been upward trajectory. I think that's the key lesson here. I'd be open to, to your opinions uh, there, to, to but... But it's amazing to me that we're never told what he teaches. So, so obviously the teaching part wasn't why we have it recorded here. It, it was this other part. And, and the thing that really convinces me—I don't want to get too way ahead where we're going to close for the day—but let me get into next week's text. Look down at verse fifty-one and fifty-two. This is where Jesus—they're Jesus has they're, they're, uh, Jesus gone off to pray. They're uh, now going back on the boat at night, crossing. Uh, the Sea of Galilee, and a storm comes up. And they see something, they're going, it's a ghost. And just like you and I would do, <laughs> they didn't go, oh, it must be Jesus. <laughs> no, they started to freak out. They're going, it's a ghost. <laughs> and Jesus calls out to them, and look what happens in verse 51-52. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astonished. Now, what does the first phrase of verse 52 say? For they did not understand about the loaves. See what John, I mean, what Mark just did. He goes, there was a lesson to be learned back there with those loaves. That Christ is satisfying, that he's sufficient, and he is sovereign. Guys, in a world that seems spinning out of control, that is our peace this day. That's our hope. Not that somehow we come out on the victor's side of all these different wranglings that are going on. Not that somehow, you know, that, you know, things just start to work out. No, our hope and our peace is that we have a maturity more and more and more and that we see that Jesus is satisfying, that He is sufficient, and we have this implicit trust that He is sovereign over all things. Let's pray this morning. Father, we love you and we thank you. And Father, this day as we uh, come and we sing this last song of worship before you, Father, we just simply sing truth this morning that you are holy, holy, holy. You are Lord God Almighty. What an appropriate way for us to to end this text and and this sermon this morning, Father that we would sing how you are a satisfying God, how you are a sufficient God, how you are a sovereign God who is over all things. And Father, I pray for those this morning that are under great trial, great times of testing. Father, today I, I, I pray that they would find that you are sufficient for their needs. Not just the physical ones, not just the the practical ones, not just the monetary ones. Yes, you are sufficient for those things. But Father, for our greatest need, and that is our sin. And that you satisfied all that we will ever need in our sinfulness by the Lamb of God, Christ your Son. And through his death and resurrection, Father, we can be satisfying to you. We will find our sufficiency in you because of Christ. And, Father, we will be able to sing forevermore, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. We pray this in the hope of Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.